Hello, and welcome to Blood, Fear, and Beer, a podcast where we drink beer and talk about horror movies. My name is Greg. My name is Alicia. And welcome to the podcast. Well, you look like you have a tasty beer uh, dangling in your hand there. What are you drinking? I hope it's tasty. So on my last shopping trip, I did not have very good luck finding new beers for me to try because it was 99% IPAs and like 1% lagers and stouts. So I did a build your own six pack thing with basically anything I could find that wasn't an IPA. And this one uh, is from the Garage Brewing Company. So I had tried their stout a couple weeks ago. It was like a peanut butter chocolate stout and that one was really good. Uh, this one is a mango Hefeweizen. Nice. So it, it smells like it's really sweet. Yeah, it smells pretty mango-y. I'm hoping it's good. Nice. So we'll see. It's good. Is it? It is. Nice. It doesn't taste nearly as sweet as it smells. It's actually more of like a wheat flavor. Can I try it? Yeah. It's pretty good. I mean, it's like very mango-y. Yeah, but it doesn't taste like fake mango flavor. You know what I mean? No, it's like, um, yeah. like almost like someone splashed some mango juice in there. I like it. It's... Kind of refreshing for how hot it's been today. Yeah, I wouldn't want to like drink those back to back because I think it is a little bit on the sweet side. Yeah. But it is uh, pretty tasty. Tastes good. I'm definitely not disappointed. What is nice. that you're drinking there? That looks kind of dark. For... Well, this, I have to give a shout out to my brother-in-law. He did a drop off with uh, my sister, your sister-in-law, <laughs> and uh, dropped off some things for your birthday. And uh, they also dropped me off a couple new beers from my favorite brewery. Sweet. Stone. And this is one that I have not tried yet, and I've wanted to. It's the Die Hard RPA. Nice. I remember you saying you wanted to try that one. I did. And then um, they're, uh, they also, I thought it was kind of cool on the back, they always have a little note about what, what's going on with the beer and what inspired them to do it. And this one was talking about how like there's different types of beer drinkers, and how there's like the person who can recite every single IPA they ever made, and all the stats behind it, and the year and the date that came out, and all this other kind of stuff. And there's other people there like, I hate stone, all they do is make IPAs. <laughs> and then there's another group. There's the Die Hardy group that just hears Stone and IPA, and they go, I'm fucking down. That's you. That's totally me. <laughs> I'm going to try it out. Oh, man, that's fucking good. Is it? Yeah. You think yeah, I, I would like hate that. it? Oh, yeah, you're going to hate it. Let me try. <laughs> See, sometimes the Stone beers especially are so deceiving because they smell so good, and then they just, like, bite me in the ass. Well, this one also had that, um, I only know it because it says it on the bottle. Oh, I do hate it. It has that mosaic hop, which I remember you particularly did not like yeah. when they had when they were doing that like variety pack thing. I can almost taste flavors, but it's just overpowered by like that chemical bitterness taste that I have thanks to the unfortunate mustard gene. Man, this thing's fucking good. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, guys. So I don't know about you, but I'm still riding the high from how great that movie was that we watched. Yeah, as the days approached recording here i kept on thinking about different scenes throughout the movie and you know reliving some of them and how fucking awesome this movie is yeah there's some great shit in this i love this movie i'm obsessed with this movie it's honestly probably one of my favorite horror movies of all time so you had a little bit of a fun idea since this movie is called the devil's candy and in it we get to know what the devil likes to eat for yeah. munching on and there is actually candy in the movie. There is. He eats it out of the fishbowl. He does. Not the devil, but, you know, the man who's killing for the devil. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what, what was your idea? I just thought of kind of a funny question for you, and it's partially based on a meme that I saw a while ago, but I tailored it to include candy. So, Greg, what five types of candy would somebody have to put in a pentagram to summon you? To summon me? Yeah. 
Oh, shit. I thought the question was going to be geared towards you. <laughs> no. That makes it harder. <laughs> You're going to be summoned. And I'm going to be summoned? Am I dead? Because that makes a difference. If I got shit going on, it's going to take a lot. Like, if I'm hanging out with my dog and we're just, like, up in the hills of Alaska and shit, it's going to take a lot. Let's say that you're not dead, just to add a little I'm bit of challenge. Dead. Yeah, you're I'm not dead, like and, somebody, and somebody wants to summon you. What kind of candy would they have to put in there? Oh, man. Does it have to be full-blown candy? Okay. Uh, let's see. Does it have to be what? <laughs> like, full-blown candy, because I feel like you got to throw it. <laughs> I need a beer in there. <laughs> like, throw a beer in. I guess That's... you could put a beer in the center as, like, an extra incentive. Okay. But try to stick with candy. Try to can. stick with candy. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Well, as you know, I'm not a super big candy person, but there are a few that come to the top of my mind. I love Reese's Pieces. Oh, yeah. Because I love peanut butter. And that's peanut butter with sugar in it, which is pretty fucking great. I like my Skittles. I like Spree. Chewy Spree, spree. right? Chewy Spree. Got out the Chewy one. And that is about where I peter out. And you're going to summon me with this. Yeah. Ah. I would tell you to, like, put some better shit in there. I don't, want, I don't want that candy. I don't know. The two things that come to my mind are the things that I had when I was a kid. So it was the little lemon heads. Oh, those are so good. And then the, uh, uh I'm going to go with the um, white chocolate. I guess I can't go with Reese's, can I? Sure you can. There's okay, no white Reese's. chocolate Reese's. They're summoning you. Like, All right. <laughs> white chocolate Reese's. White chocolate Reese's. Nice. Okay, so we have white chocolate Reese's, Reese's Pieces, yeah. Skittles, Chewy Spree, and lemon heads. Yeah. Nice. Lemonheads are still good. They still... Are they? Do they hold yeah, up? I don't see I think, those anywhere. I don't either. I think you have to go to like a classic candy store to find those normally. Oh, I don't go to those places. Oh, they're so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of gross me out. The candy stores? Unless they... Because there's some that do the bins. No, those no, gross no. me out. No, they like have to classic, do the tubes. Like a classic candy store where you they gotta, just have old You gotta do your first in, first yeah. out. You gotta do the tube. There's a really, really amazing one in Long Beach on uh, 2nd Street. And it's all just classic candy and collectibles and, like, lunch boxes and just really cool shit that you don't see anywhere else anymore. That's kind of cool. I actually went to the uh, Hershey's factory in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Nice. Even though I hate chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I love chocolate and I'm not a big fan of Hershey's except for s'mores. But that would be cool to check out. It was kind of cool. It was uh, far more animatronic than I was anticipating it to be. It's more of, like, a little amusement, a small amusement park for very <laughs> small children. <laughs> very out of place. Like the I, was only adult my, there. I was by myself traveling across the country. With the big bushy beard. With the big bushy beard. <laughs> <laughs> Riding the chocolate noob train. <laughs> yeah, I got quite a few stray looks from the parents around there. I can imagine. All right. So what five ingredients, candies, would have to be placed in your printogram? Okay. So I feel like I need to work on my game because I would be way too easy to summon and people would just be calling me in left and right and I got shit to do. So I really had to think about this. I had like the opposite problem that you did because I love candy so much. The perfect pentagram full of candy to summon me would have to be Sour Patch Kids, Swedish Fish. Uh, I also love Mexican candy, as you know. I would come home <laughs> he with like looks like a... <laughs> <laughs> I would come home with like bags of it. Uh, but specifically if I had to just pick one, there's like these little uh hard candies that ha- that are chewy in the middle and it's like spicy tamarind candy and I'm addicted to those. And then I'm gonna have to go with Zots. Those are Neither the Zots. I fucking love Zots. Oh my god, they're so good. And then the last one, since I do love chocolate would be pretty much any of the dark chocolate with salted caramel. Pick one. Uh, okay, the Ghirardelli squares. Okay. Those are those are bomb. Nice. But okay, so we got 
Sour Patch Kids, Swedish Fish. We have Mexican Candy mm-hmm. with the tamarind. Yeah. Not, is it tamarind or? Tamarind, yeah. Tamarind. Zots. And the, um, I just had it and then I lost it. <laughs> the dark chocolate. The dark chocolate. Salted thing. caramel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That would do it. I don't want, yeah, don't summon me with candy. Beer? Yeah, something better than like beer and some scotch and uh, some good stuff. You good know? stuff, yeah. Beef tacos. And maybe some Skittles? Yeah, you can throw them. Or like some Reese's. You can throw them like one candy. So I was, <laughs> I was kind of like researching for this movie and uh, thinking about different scenes and reliving them, kind of like we were just talking about. And I ended up going down a rabbit hole on the internet. So basically I was searching because this movie is, you know, one of the most metal things I've ever seen in my life. So I started kind of typing into Google, like I was trying to find stories that other people have told about the most metal things they've ever seen or done or like heard about. Nice. And, you know, I was trying to think like, do I have any cool stories like that where, you know, somebody told me something and I thought, holy shit, that's super metal or if I've witnessed something or done anything. So I wrote a couple things down, but I was wondering if, if anything came to mind for you about like the most metal shit you've ever seen. That's a fun, fun one. (laughs) It's, I feel like there's so many things that you just don't think of when you have that kind of a question, you know? So I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that I'm going to miss over. That being said, I think one of the first things that popped in my mind, I don't remember all the details of it, but you may, because I think you're the one who told me about this in the first place. Um, it was a, a story of, I think it was Wildebeest <gasps> in oh my um, God. Africa. Yes. And then uh, there were like two of them, and there was these poachers, and like, they killed the one wildebeest. So actually it was one wildebeest and okay. the poachers shot it, but it didn't die. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then like, so and then it like tracked the poachers down for like days. Two weeks. Two weeks? Two God, weeks. I love this story. I know. <laughs> it's like such a, such a satisfying story. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Tracked them down for two weeks and fucking killed them. <laughs> <laughs> Like, just, oh to, be, just yeah. to be clear, the wildebeest killed the fucking poachers. <laughs> yeah, after stalking them and hunting them down for, <laughs> for two, two weeks. weeks <laughs> I love to get that revenge. story. Like, that's fucking metal. Oh, that's a good one. I totally forgot about that. Nature is metal. That is one of my, yeah. That actually reminds me of one that I didn't even write down, but it was on Planet Earth Season 2 with the snakes hunting the lizards in groups. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Was that? fucking crazy. They would, like, wait under the rocks and literally jump into the air. Yeah. In groups, like the snakes. To eat the lizards. That's the best show. It was so, so badass. Gorgeous. Yeah. So awesome. Nice. What else you got? I have some other ones about animals too. There was one uh, that I love the story so much about uh, my brother's cat. I knew you were It's so awesome. So he had this cat when they lived in uh, Austin, Texas. And you know Texas is home of like the most terrifying bugs and animals in the United States pretty much. Everything there wants to kill you. And uh, every once in a while, he'd have something get into the house under the door, just through the cracks. And uh, there was one day where he got up from the couch and he saw a scorpion in the kitchen. And he was like, oh, shit. And then his cat started walking over to it. And this cat is like, she was rescued from the streets. She was pretty hardcore. Like, she would literally try to kill me every time I went over there. It was like a hardcore gangster cat. Gangster cat. Yeah. So she just like walks over to this thing and my before my brother could even get over there to stop her or like tell her to get away from it, she just hovers over it and pees on it until it drowns and dies. <laughs> <laughs> so his cat just peed on a scorpion until it drowned, drowned. and died. <laughs> you know, and I don't that, like cats, but that's 
pretty fucking metal. And when cool. he told me that, I sent him the. It was like a gift from Metalocalypse of pickles. Going, that is the most metal thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So good. That's awesome. I also uh, I saw this video. I think it was last week. That was pretty metal, and it was just a video of a decapitated wasp picking up its own head and flying away. (laughs) (laughs) That was super metal. That's pretty great. Nature is fun. Nature is fun, and nature is metal, and I have a couple stories about people in here, and one of them kind of combines people and nature. And uh, as I was looking on the internet, I found a, a really good Reddit thread. And the first post on there, the question was, like, what's the most metal thing you've ever seen? And so many comments on there were about Steve Irwin. And I was like, holy shit, yes. Because my family and I were such huge fans of his show, like, when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everything he's ever done is hardcore metal. Uh, but there was one episode in particular that I actually remembered when I read about this, where... He just gets done. Steve Irwin has just finished, you know, wrestling yet another crocodile. And in the process, he dislocated his finger. And then he gets up and he's still on camera. And he was like, Crocky, I dislocated my finger. And then he just like pops it back into place on camera. Like it's nothing after wrestling a giant crocodile. Right. And then he like pops it back into place. And he was like, oh, never mind. It's broken. (laughs) And then he just goes on about his business. (laughs) I think there was another one where he was in a helicopter and he saw a wild boar down below, so he had the helicopter hover like six to eight feet above the ground, and he jumps out of the moving helicopter, tackles the wild what boar the to tell us about it, and then he like pats it on the butt and sends it on its way. That guy was the best. He was amazing. Oh man. <laughs> I just made myself sad. Made me sad too. And then um I have a, a couple more involving people, and then my last one is involving a horror movie. But I think I've talked about this woman before, and she popped into my head again, uh, but it was a Polish nurse named Irina Sendler. Do you remember her? Sounds really familiar. So she was a nurse in World War II, and she was basically part of an underground organization that helped smuggle out Jewish children and, like, get them out of the Warsaw Ghetto. And, uh, you know, long story short, she would, along with, you know, help from the people she worked with, smuggle these children out, create fake documents for them, and then send them out to families who were willing to take them in. And she ended up rescuing, like, 2,500 children during the Holocaust. Holy shit, that's amazing. And not only that, but she was arrested several times. And the last time she was arrested was in 1943 because she was under suspicion. And she was tortured in prison. She hid the list of documents that had the names and locations of the kids that she rescued. And she never revealed it, never gave it up, even under torture and imprisonment. And at one point, she was actually sentenced to death. But on the day of her execution, the organization that she worked with bribed the guards to let her out, and she escaped. Oh, wow. On that day. And she lived until, like, 2008 or 2009 or something, and she just went on to be awesome for the rest of her life. I was like, that is fucking metal. Nice. So there's that one. (laughs) The next one I had was one of my favorite stories on the My Favorite Murder podcast. Is the one I think of? I was going to talk about that one. Really? Yeah. (laughs) With the... The guy who was shot in the chest. That was another one. So there, were, it was the survival story of these two men on the Appalachian Trail. And the, one of the guys, his name was Sean Farmer. And basically he was like camping with his friend. And this guy shows up with his dog. And the guy turns out to be a serial killer. And he tries to kill these two friends. And they both survived. And they miraculously got away. But Sean specifically was shot in the head and didn't even notice at first. And then he was shot in the chest. Like dead center in the chest. Which should have killed him. 
But then on the podcast, they said he had so much muscle mass in his chest that the bullet kind of just bounced around in there and didn't do any damage. And then <laughs> Georgia was like, oh my God, that's the sexiest I... thing I've ever heard in my life. Glad that was a good one. Also metal. Very, I, that was on my mind. But I was also thinking, it's not nearly as fun of a story, but... Mary Vincent? Mary Vincent. I was thinking of her too. I was just, it's so hard to talk about. It's so about. hard. But uh... the fact that she went through that... I can't even talk about all that. I can't either, but, but if, I thought of her. Yeah, she's uh, an amazing survivor. Like, the story is unfucking real Yeah. And um, it's on My Favorite Murder. I think it's number 17. It's uh, number 18. 18? Yeah, okay. episode 18. She also has an episode of I've Survived, which is insanely hard to watch, but she's telling the story herself, and it's just an incredible and horrifying story yeah i mean i don't want to butcher anything about it but i mean basically this woman is just unbelievably tortured and is amputated on what both arms yeah this guy larry singleton asshole uh she was 15 she was hitchhiking and he kidnapped her hit her over the head with a sledgehammer uh trigger warning by the way it's like really fucked up uh raped her all night and then cut off both of her arms with an axe and then threw her down a 30-foot cliff and left her to die. And she spent the... It took her the entire night, or the entire day, she crawled up this cliff with no arms, completely naked, and bleeding out. And she was able to, like, stuff dirt into where her arms had been cut and basically made it all the way up to a road and was able to flag down a car. And it was a couple on their honeymoon that stopped for her and, like, raced her to the hospital, and she survived. But And she was saying, like... You know, I, I wanted to just give up and I didn't really want to go on. But then I thought, like, he's going to do this to somebody else. I have to get out of here. And they it's caught crazy. him. And they yeah. convicted him. He only did, like, eight years. Yeah, he served eight years. And then he got out and did do it to somebody else. And then finally after that, he went away for good. But it was just, like, a horrifying story. It still haunts me to this day. I know. That one fucked me up big time. But yeah. uh, it's still a very metal story. It is. Because of her. Yes. She was awesome. Yes. So... The last one I have refers to a horror movie, and I put this one in here just for fun because it's just, it's really metal. But it was uh, when The Exorcist came out in 1973, and the sensationalism behind it and people's reactions to it is one of the most fascinating things about it. Uh, But at one of the premieres of the movie in Rome, when it came out, the weather was horrible. There was this massive line of people outside. They had heard how terrifying this movie was. Everybody's nervous and freaked out and then there's a lightning storm and across the street from the movie theater there's this church with a giant cross on it and the lightning strikes the cross and it falls and people start losing their shit i love that story (laughs) like that is so metal (laughs) (laughs) so that's a good one i had to throw that in there just for fun nice yeah and i i I was having a hard time thinking of these but you suggested just like a couple personal stories there's one with uh, my my grandfather on my dad's side, he was, uh, I really didn't even have anything to do with him being in the, the army at the time, mm-hmm. but, you know, he was uh, in the army during World War Two, and there was a point where he was in the, in the barracks that he was uh, stationed in, it was in some place in New York, and um, it was during, like, the winter, and it was super fucking cold there, and there was basically nobody there, like, it was just him and three other guys that were, like, standing security over basically these empty barracks and these grounds and they have to like take turns patrolling and whatnot and there was at some point 
he had to like go in and so you can just imagine at least that's how i imagine it mm-hmm. i don't know if you've ever seen like those large hangars at the airports yeah. you know like a football field long and you know you can park jumbo jets and um shit like that so like these really big over big hangers and he walks in and it's again it's like freezing out there's ice and snow and he goes in and checks the place out and then as he's like walking back all of a sudden he's like halfway back to where he would have to get to the door and there are two doberman pinchers that are there to stand guard that he didn't know that they had stationed inside the facility to attack any intruders and uh you know they're not checking badges yeah (laughs) and so and they're you know ferocious fucking dogs and that's what they were trained to do was to fucking kill on sight if anybody comes in here and he looks at like how far away the door is and he's like i'm fucking dead like there's no way i'm getting out of this thing and he starts running trying to make it and as he's getting there he's like you know you can hear he can hear the dogs behind him getting closer and closer and growling and barking and he just decides to turn around and lunge at them and just, like, give them the fucking meanest fucking growl that he can and just turns around and goes, ah! just screams <laughs> as hard as he can in their face, and they both stop dead in their tracks and are just stunned long enough for him to, like, run and keep on moving before they are able to, like, register what happened and he got out of there alive. Oh my god. And, uh, which I thought was pretty fucking that was awesome. so badass. And what's even funnier about that, the follow-up story, is he he told that story to us when we were kids, you know, me and my sisters, and there was a point where he took us to uh, Not Scary Farm, and he had never been before, but he wanted to take us. And oh gosh, those poor maze workers, what yeah. did they do? Yeah, so... You know, and he told me, he's like, it was just a fucking reaction. There's nothing I could do about it. Like, yeah. I, I just, it came natural. Like, when people do that to me, I, like, I lunge at them. Especially you know? if you've been, like, in the military, yeah, you know? Yeah, you know, and yeah. so it was, uh, they had, I think they had just started doing the ones where they, like, come out of the bushes, like, they do the run and the slide or something oh, like that. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. And so, you know, he was watching people get scared and everything. He thought it was funny. And this guy comes and he, um jumps out of the bushes like that and he starts sliding and my grandfather did that fucking lunge thing to him it scared the shit out of all of us and we were right there but he turned around and did that same fucking thing and the guy literally pissed himself oh my god it was i felt bad for the dude but it was super funny oh my god yeah (laughs) like there was a puddle of piss there oh man that poor guy i know that sounds like something my mom would do just for fun, not, you know, to the point where they piss themselves, but, like, turn around and scare the people who work there. Yeah. Just for shits, you mm-hmm. know? I think a lot of people that's try, but... Yeah. My grandpa's well, that's her, her trick is she just screams out of nowhere, and, like, she does it to my brother and I all the time to the point where when she does it now, like, we don't even blink or react. We're just so used to it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my brother still knows how to get me, though. Yeah. He's quiet about it. He'll just like show up behind me or show up different places when I don't expect it. Like you do. You don't yeah. even do it on purpose. You just show up and then, you know, I've been listening to true crime for nine hours and I freak out. And I guess I'll just, it's not any particular story, but if I'm going to me- mention one grandfather, I got to mention the other one because they're both two of the most important people in my life. Definitely influential. And uh, my other grandfather was also in World War II and he was actually on the beach of Normandy on D-Day. And uh, I think that's pretty fucking metal. Yeah, you can't really top that. He was amazing. He was un- such a sweet guy. Oh my god. Yeah, well, I feel like that's the essence of truly being metal, though. Like anybody who's met any metalheads in real life, like it's not about being aggressive and being brutal. Like they're some of the sweetest people I've ever met, and like sometimes that's like really what being metal is. 
And I think this movie touches on that. It does. It subverts a lot of stereotypes about, quote, like, metalheads or the music and the fans. Absolutely. In really touching ways. And I think that is a big part of what what makes, you know, metal metal. Is this strong front. And they are strong in a lot of ways, but it's not in the way that you think it is. Exactly. And they will fucking take their decapitated head and fly off. (laughs) <laughs> but it's not because they're, like, evil or possessed. Well said. Okay, so we are, of course, talking about this amazing hidden gem of a horror movie, The Devil's Candy, from... Okay, so it had two different release years when I looked it up. Initially, it was released in 2015 on, like, the festival circuit, and then mm. it was pretty quiet for two years, and then it was released on Netflix in 2017. Oh, is that what happened? And that's where we saw it. Yeah. For the first time. Man, this was such a pleasant surprise the first time I watched this. Yeah. And every single time after that. Every single time. And it certainly rewards many rewatches. Yes. So this movie was directed by Sean Byrne, and this was his second movie. The first one he directed was, it was either 2008 or 2009. It was The Loved Ones, which I have not seen, but I've had a lot of people recommend it to me, and now I'd really like to see it. Same. So we got to do that soon. Did you want to give us like a just a quick recap of what this movie's about or the premise? Yeah, so it's one of the things I like about this is that it's what I would call like a film vignette, just a, a quick look into this family's life essentially. And although there are characters on the peripheral, you're you're it's very um, family centric, and in particular, you're looking mainly at a, a father and a daughter that have just a super cute and fun, awesome relationship and super into metal. And the father is an artist. He's a painter. And the daughter is in, like, high school. And essentially what happens um, is that the family, you can tell they're they're in Texas and they're, you know, kind of struggling to make it. You know, they're both working hard trying to just kind of make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And um, they have an opportunity for, like, a really good... Uh, deal on a house someplace in Texas and long story short this house is available because one of the first scenes in the movie is that there's this guy that murders his mother with a guitar yeah and then um it's implied that he also kills his father when he comes home yes it's also implied but they pitch it and it's all that these the mother fell down the stairs and the dad committed suicide and so that's why the house is available they move into the house, and I don't want to go blow by blow what happens, but this this guy that did the initial killing is a really sick fuck, and we find out that he is basically a, a serial killer of small children, and... I just got chills. Yeah, yeah, and he is also mentally unstable, and he is trying to get back to his house, and he has now forms an attachment to this daughter, and he likes her, he doesn't want to kill her, but then... Things kind of spiral out of control to the point where he feels like he has to. And that's kind of the, the long and short of it, I guess. That's a good There's idea. a lot of stuff yeah. going on throughout and different ideas and concepts and themes that are explored. But I'd say that's kind of the gist of the backbone of the movie. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect recap. And this killer, uh, his name is Ray, played by Pruitt Taylor Vince, who it seems like he often plays this kind of character maybe not to this extreme but he does a um, very good job in those roles he was, and I was excellent yeah and this, and this one in particular i thought he did a wonderful job yeah we get the impression just right from the first scene that he is suffering some kind of 
delusion. So he's hearing this evil demonic voice who he claims to be Satan himself telling him to kill these children. And we don't hear what the voice is saying. We just hear kind of a chanting in the background. And, you know, one of the first metal moments we have is right in the first 30 seconds of the movie where the only way that he can drown out the voice is by playing this like grungy, super loud note on his red flying V guitar as loud as he possibly can. It's very, at first it kind of seems a little silly, but every time we watch this more and it's just, he's playing this flying V Gibson red guitar and he has the amp turned up to 11 and he's basically just playing one chord at this slow rhythmic pattern. Yeah. And it's just... (laughs) And... You're wondering, like, what the fuck is going on? But it's just, like, it's the only way that he can try to quiet the voices that are in his head. Yeah. And it's not just that you get the impression, it's that you hear them. Like, you get to hear what he hears. Yeah. And it's driving him nuts. And then the second metal moment is that he, his mom runs up and tells him to, like, he's got to stop. Yeah, and then he's going back to the hospital. And, yeah, yeah, and he just takes the fucking guitar and hammers are like a fucking sledgehammer with this thing down the stairs yeah and then the crucifix turns upside down on the wall as this happens like Mm -hmm. so right off the bat metal is shit and you know that's the house that the family ends up moving into and this family is probably the most adorable horror movie family since poltergeist for sure absolutely and so endearing i love all of them they're all so cute like even the mom uh, so their names are jesse is the dad he's the, the painter zoe is their daughter and astrid is the wife and mother. And you kind of get the impression that they had Zoe pretty young and that they're just kind of struggling artists and trying to get by. But for the most part, they seem just happy and content and they love the shit out of each other. Especially, you know, Jesse and Zoe, they have this special bond specifically over their love of metal. Right. And it's so cute. Like, he drops her off at her first day of school and she, like, doesn't want to go and she's worried that she's not going to make friends and... When I'm watching it, I'm thinking, like, what are you talking about? You're so cool. I would totally be your friend. Like, you're going to have no issues making friends. But, but you know how it is. Do you remember yeah. what it was like being a metal kid? I do. It was... It's rough out there. It is. Especially That's true. In, I was a like, metal kid. And that was, like, in Texas. I can only imagine. It's too bad she wasn't in Austin, because Austin would have snatched been, her up. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. <laughs> But yeah, that's true. I was like, I would have been her friend, but you know, her dad's kind of trying to cheer her up and then she's reluctant and then he like just throws up the metal horns with his hand and then she's like, all right, she throws (laughs) it up. (laughs) They just have the cutest bond and even the mom, she doesn't share their love of metal, but they still, it's almost like the dad and the daughter like accept her anyway Yeah. (laughs) into their little circle. (laughs) And you can tell the mom's also into, it's a music-centered family. I think you can tell the mom's also, like, heavily influenced by music, and you get the impression that that's kind of where uh, the mom and dad initially got their relationship together. And yeah. Also, on just the... I'd call it the, you know, the, the, the strange factor. Like, she she's a hairstylist. I think that's what we yeah. end up finding out. Yeah. And, you know, she you can tell that she, you know, likes more spooky type of stuff. She wears black clothing. Yeah. She kind of has Blue a hair. little bit of blue in her hair. So she's... You can tell she's switched over. She's trying to be more professional because she's the breadwinner in the family. She's the where all the income's coming from. And she's been the one that had to take on that form, the adult yeah. form, if you will, and not really been able to indulge in embracing kind of the, the fun music and metal like they have. But she's not, like, resentful of it, you know? Like, yeah. it's just as fun for her, too. Yeah, like, it, it's very realistically portrayed, like, the ways that the financial strain and stress 
affects the family, but they don't, you know, overplay it to increase the drama or to increase tension. It's just a realistic portrayal of like what that kind of financial stress can look like Mm -hmm. and the impact it can have. But yeah, it seems like the dad, Jesse, is really hopeful that, you know, he's going to make it in this place as a painter. And he has this amazing workspace studio, which is like the reason he bought the house. And because they're living in this house, he starts to hear the voice that Ray had been hearing, which we have come to understand is the voice of the devil, maybe? Maybe. Like, we don't maybe. know. We but don't really know. Now but... it wasn't just in Ray's head. Yeah. Like, the dad starts to hear this. And it happens the moment the family leaves. So the wife's gone to work, and he's dropped Zoe off to school, and he comes back to start painting. And immediately, he just starts hearing something, and he is instinctually drawn up. He's in his workspace, which is, you know, outside of that house. It's like an entire um, work studio. Which is just a fucking dream situation. Yeah. Like, I would totally move in there. Minus the demonic presence or whatever's <laughs> going on. But I can see why you bought it. Yeah. And he's what just instinctually drawn up to Zoe's room where she's moved in. And he peels back one of the posters that she's hung up. One of the, you know, 50 posters that's on the wall right over her bed. And it's the impression of... Well, not the impression, but just the outline of where that crucifix had been that um, fell when the mother had been killed. And then he immediately has to go down and start painting. Yeah. Like, he's just struck by something. When he's, like, in a trance, too. So, eventually, this happens to him multiple times where he just starts painting and loses time. All of a sudden, hours have gone by. Night has fallen. And then his wife gets home, and she's trying to talk to him. He doesn't even hear her. He's so engrossed in his painting. And then finally he snaps out of it and he was like, what the hell? I don't remember painting this. And the first one he does is the black inverted cross, Mm -hmm. which is the paintings he ends up doing are badass. Yes. Really cool. Yeah, really cool work. So some kind of presence or force is compelling him to do these paintings. Oh, something I wrote down, which I know we've commented on multiple times. So Jesse you know, likes to go into his studio and take off most of his clothes and paint. How the hell is that guy so ripped from being a painter? That's the only thing that kind of gripes me with this movie. (laughs) Like, that dude is insanely ripped. Like, he is cut. Yeah, that is the definition of cut. Like, what the fuck? And all he does is paint. Yeah. And smoke weed. And listen to metal. And listen to metal. We that always that <laughs> always kind of gets me a little bit in the yeah. when there's like a dude or a woman, you know, like any human being that yeah. physically their physique is just not just, you know, they're in okay shape. Unattainable. Like they are in unattainable cut shape and they never do anything except for like lay around and smoke weed and eat cheeseburgers. Yeah. That always, not that he's doing that, yeah. but he does smoke weed. Yeah. But you don't see, you never actually see him eat anything in the whole movie. So maybe yeah. that's what his part of his deal. Maybe. I don't know. He just <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> paints all day. But, but that's yeah. all he does. But he is literally... There's not a lot of movies that give me both body envy for another person's body and body shame at Aww. the same time. <laughs> but this one did, does it for me. Like, that guy is insanely cut. Yeah. That being said, I can totally feel... I, I would 100% be down with the just get down to your skivvies and getting your job done. Yeah. I would be all over that. Like, why go and get your clothes all painted up and everything just put slap on some whitey tidies and start painting the devil don't want to ruin all your band shirts no yeah his paintings are really cool and like at the beginning of the movie he's kind of you know his pride is a little bit wounded because they're trying to make ends meet and 
again, this movie goes by so quickly, but they still manage to take the time to... Like, it doesn't feel rushed at any point, which is really impressive because it's an hour and 15 minutes long, and there's kind of a lot going on. But at one point, you see a stack of bills next to his painting, and he's trying to commission a piece of art for a bank, a local bank, and it's like butterflies. And, you know, his daughter comes in at one point and kind of ribs him. She's like, butterflies are so not metal. And he's like, you know, I... This is not what I want to be painting, but <laughs> we have to we have to pay the mortgage, we have to pay the bills, and you know, you kinda of get the impression that it seems like maybe they moved in at the beginning of summer and a couple months have gone by before Zoe starts school because at this point he has bills that say final notice and three months or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, you know so, they've been in for a little while. So they're going under fast. And I think the other thing to note on that too is like how long those trances lasted then. Because he hadn't yeah. been working he you know, he'd been working on this piece for the bank. Yeah. Um, and when he comes in, you get the impression that he's, you know, been working on that or whatever. He's had it, but you know, he hasn't like touched it again. He's been so enthralled, even though he knows he needs to get to work on this thing and yeah. needs to be doing it. So what are your, what, what are some of your thoughts on, you know, what is going on when he's in these trances? I kind of go back and forth every time I watch this and I've watched it at least six or seven times now. I've even gone back and forth a couple times since this last watch. So you kind of get the impression that Jesse is also hearing the voice of Satan. But I'm honestly not so sure that that's all that's going on with Jesse in particular. You know, we'll go into more detail about this later. But we know almost for certain that Ray, the serial killer, is being influenced by Satan. And that he has been overtaken by or given into these dark forces and there just seems to be something strange about this area and this house. And even the real estate agent seemed off. Like he, you know, for one, he lied about the murder, which isn't totally unusual for a real estate agent. But I noticed that almost all of the people that Jesse comes into contact with in that area behave strangely, are smooth talkers, wear red and black, and have black eyes. Mm -hmm. And the realtor ticked all of those boxes. Yeah. There was something off about him. But I ultimately, like, long story short, I'm almost convinced that Jesse is being influenced by battling forces. So both good and evil, Satan, whatever you want to call it, God, whatever you want to call it. The reason why I think that and why it's not just Satan and that Jesse, like, has the strength and the fortitude to veer away from that or not give into the influence is the second painting that he does. Uh, he wakes up in the middle of the night in another trance and goes to the butterfly painting and in the middle of all of these butterflies, he paints the faces of children that we later find out are children that Ray has murdered. And the most unsettling part of that painting is that he paints his own daughter, Zoe, screaming and on fire as one of those butterflies. And it's terrifying, but it's almost like a warning. And I keep asking myself, like, if, it, if this is Satan who's t showing him these things and showing him these murdered children and what is in store for his daughter, why would he get that warning? Why would he tell him about that? Right. Why would he give them the opportunity to do something about it? So that's what's getting me about that and why I think there might be opposing forces at work here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you think about that? So I 100% I agree. So first time watching this through or even the second time, I definitely had some conflicting thoughts about what was going on. Yeah. This time through, I've gleaned some small details that I hadn't before. And there's certain lines that I chose to pick up on and kind of emphasize more. 
in terms of using it as a lens of watching this movie and testing that hypothesis. And in doing so, it seemed to have worked. And I, I agree with you. I think there is certainly uh, dual forces that are acting. One of the reasons behind that, if I can just move forward a little bit, yeah. when Ray moves out of the house, because he has to, he ends up moving into a hotel, essentially, mm-hmm. that he's been living in. And um, Ray never changes his clothes. He's always in this red jumpsuit. And he's always, every time you see him, he in his hotel, he's watching television. And he's watching a particular uh, religious um, evangelical channel. And that pastor always is talking about the devil. And there's a few things that he says in there. One of them is that idea that Satan is not some mythical creature. He is not, you know, what we see in the the news or what we see in movies. And he's not this horned creature that we, you know, have come to cartoonize and uh, laugh at. It is the deeds, the evil deeds that people commit. And, you know, he goes to, you know, wars and rapes and murders and things like that. And saying that, you know, Satan lives through humans. That is how evil exists. That is what evil is, is us letting evil exist. He touches on that. And what I also get out of that, because you hear the same thing. There's um, something that my great-grandfather said. I didn't get to know the man, unfortunately, but... He used to tell it to my grandfather and to my dad all the time. And, you know, to his deathbed where he was basically, you know, in agony. And he would have his family around him. And, you know, what he would tell them is that you, you know, you make your own happiness. And, you know, I'm happy here with my family. And no matter what situation you're in, you you make the best of it. And you, you are the one who decides, we can sit here and watch a movie and say, entertain me. But unless you actively want to enjoy it and it's something you're interested in and you want to be there, doesn't matter how good it is, you're not going to enjoy the thing. Yeah. It takes active participation. So I think on the same realm, even though it's not touched on in that dialogue, good deeds are also manifested through humans. And I think it's that duality. I think a lot of this, even though they, I think they're more upfront about showing you the, the evil side of thing with Ray and the, the children and this family. Um, the other side of this that doesn't really get touched on or put on a pedestal is the goodness of this family. Yeah. And so I think that is what we are seeing in these trances that uh, Jesse goes through. It's the fact that there is this evil force that is trying to, for whatever reason, has a strong hold in this place. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously affected um, Ray. And it is now trying to infect him. But I, I think that he's definitely feeling and sensing that. And initially, he's just kind of taken with it. And I think it's part of that whole artist vibe thing, too, of, like, being inspired and just getting into a trance. Like, I'm not a painter, you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, I can definitely sympathize with the right word. I can understand. I don't know. can't think of the right word right now. But I can understand where he's coming from. There's been so many times I've been working on a project or even, you know, playing guitar or something like that where I'll just go to fuck around for a few minutes or an hour and next thing I know, it's time for dinner. You know, so I can understand getting sucked in. And as he does that, he's, you know, really taken in by that. But then he starts to feel that evilness. And I also think there's that other side that is trying to work through that same conduit. And he is talking about how he can hear 
or feel these children just begging to be set free. And I think that's felt like that good part of him or the, the good force is trying to work through him of like trying to expose this evil. Definitely. And on more than one occasion, he's almost like we see these exercises in free will, if you want to call it that. And he is more than once given the choice to act on either of these two forces. And it seems like he's tested a few times. And this is where it gets kind of convoluted because or ambiguous because, you know, at one point he's painting the, the butterfly painting specifically. And then when he snaps out of it, it's dark outside and he realizes that he forgot to pick his daughter up from school and it's hours late. And then is it this good force that's telling him to paint this and warn him about it, but then also making him forget about his daughter? Like that was kind of unclear to me, but he immediately goes to pick her up and, you know, she's understandably upset and feels hurt and a little betrayed. And it's, you know, it's her second day of school. She doesn't know anybody. And you know, I really feel for him in these moments because like you said, he's such a sweet guy and even more than being her father sometimes, like he wants to be her friend and he cherishes this bond so deeply and he cannot stand the idea of her being disappointed with him or mad at him. And I feel like that kind of comes into play in some really disturbing ways later into the movie. Did you want to touch on that a little bit? Go ahead. Okay. So at one point, not too long after they've moved into the house, Ray shows up and rings the doorbell, and Zoe answers the door. And this part, like, so many moments of this movie just sent shivers down my spine, but this was, you know, one of the first times where that was just amplified. And I kept thinking through this whole scene, like, okay, Zoe and her mom are not murderinos at all. They've never seen a true crime documentary in their life. They've never learned about stranger danger. Like, they're way too chill with this whole situation. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Ray shows up, and he's just being weird, and he's speaking in these cryptic sentences and he's like I need to come home now this is my mommy and daddy's house and you know Zoe's being super friendly she's 14 year old sweet girl and she's trying to talk to this guy and be nice to him and then the mom comes in and then I think oh thank goodness the parents are here and then the mom does the same thing she's being super friendly to him and doesn't seem to be alarmed by how strange he's acting and then Jesse comes in and he was like hey who the hell are you what are you doing here and he's still trying to befriend Zoe, Ray is still trying to befriend Zoe and like pointing out her, she has a fake tattoo of a flying V on her arm. And he's like, oh, I have one just like that. And Jesse's like, okay, man, it's time to go. And he gets him out the door and shuts the door and locks it. And then Ray just starts ringing the doorbell over and over and over and over in a menacing way. And finally, Jesse's like, I'm going to call the cops. And, you know, when I'm watching this, I'm like, good, call the cops. This guy's being a weirdo. And the mom and daughter are like, you were mean to him. He, you know, his parents died in this house. Like, you should treat people the way you want to be treated. And he just looks at them like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> that's how I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me right now? No, fuck no. that. And then the next day, Zoe goes to open the door to go to school. And this Marshall amp and the red flying V are sitting there propped up outside as like a gift to her. Yeah. Which, you know, as adults, we're like, holy shit, red flag, not okay. And Jesse, the dad, feels the same way. And Zoe's like, please, can I keep it? Please, can I keep it? And he's like, absolutely not. But, you know, eventually, again, he wants to be her friend and he wants her to not be upset with him. So he lets her keep it. After, and that's exactly after he disappointed her by leaving, um, her, by at leaving her at school. Yeah. And so that was like part of her deal. And she was like, now that I'm thinking about that, that even works with the, the hypothesis I'm going with. And I'll, I'll reveal that later. But okay. that totally makes sense because now it seems like in each one of those characters, they've 
all had different moments where this played out. But that being said, you know, and it, it kind of makes me sad because I, I can feel this for those parents out there that are struggling with their kid. And, you know, like he's trying to be her friend and she dreams of having this uh, Gibson Flying V guitar and Marshall amp because that is at what, at the time, her, she says, her favorite guitarist, which is uh, Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill yeah. from uh, Metallica, Metallica yeah. plays. And when she sees that, she's like, come on, well, let me have it. And, you know, it's like, that's my dream. And he's like, I was going to buy you a guitar and amp for your birthday coming up. I've been yeah. saving up for this. And she just is like, I bet it wasn't going to be a Gibson and a Marshall. I think he was lying. I think so, too. Yeah. And it makes me even, it makes it even Sad. a sadder thing. Like, because even if he was or if he wanted, to, you can tell that he wanted to. And he probably had been thinking about trying to save up for it for a while now. But we also know that he's three months in the hole on bills. And it's just a really sad thing at that point. Because I think that's where he really felt that hurt initially. And then when he disappointed her, that I felt like was a big disappointment to him. Where he felt like he was a disappointment as a father to her and as a friend. And then when he left her there in the way that she subsequently treated him. Yeah. For doing that. And then kind of manipulated him into letting her have that guitar even though he knew it wasn't a good idea. Yeah. It's just kind of a bummer thing. So going off of that, let's get into some of the horrifying shit that happened in this movie. Because I think you and I are a little bit desensitized because we've watched it so many times. But, you know, this time we watched it, I tried to kind of put myself back into my own shoes when I was watching this for the first time. And there are some truly terrifying scenes. Yes. And the first one, if <laughs> kind of a funny story that ties in with this. You were there, but uh, we had watched this movie with my dad not too long ago, like a couple months ago. And he like fidgets a lot, moves around a lot. And when he's not really into a movie or not really into an activity, he'll like start chatting a lot or talking a lot or tapping on things or making jokes and just kind of like unconsciously, uncontrollably just start fidgeting and moving. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I know exactly when he's going to stop doing that and get into this movie. (laughs) And it's the first kill scene that we see with Ray, where uh, the first kid we see in the painting Ray is walking through this park and there's this little boy on a swing and his older brother runs away to get the dog that ran away. Well, can I, sorry, because I think it's a, it's a really good buildup. Yeah. There's a, so you see this little boy and you also see his older brother. That's not that much older, but one's probably like a young teenager and the other one's probably like eight years old, maybe. And then there's a dog and he's like playing fetch with his, the, the teenager, young teenager is playing fetch with his dog. And you also see Ray, they're like cutting back and forth. You see Ray in the bushes. And then you see a scene where the kid throws the ball again, it goes into the bushes, the dog goes in to get it, but the dog doesn't come out. And it gives you the impression that Ray has somehow stopped that dog. You I know? didn't even think about and, that. And oh yeah, that's what I got. That's what made it like a really oh, good shit. and that's how he got the other brother away. Right? I don't I think that's how either he got him away or what, but I think you what is trying to happen there. And I, the first time I watched it, I definitely got that feeling was like, oh shit, he's going to lure this older brother in and kill him. But what's actually happening is that he's luring the older brother away so that he can kill the younger brother. So, oh, sorry, I just, like, I thought that no, was like, yeah, that, that was a good, quick. like, there are a lot of good uh, juxtapositions in this movie between, like, different things that are happening simultaneously and it's done so artistically and beautifully. 
even when it's horrifying. So he gets the older brother away and he's walking behind the younger brother and it's like slow motion and there's like that distorted guitar note playing again. And he just picks up this massive rock and then hits the little kid over the back of the head with it. And that was the moment where my dad stopped talking. I know. And he <laughs> he like, was completely silent whole time the, rest the rest of the movie. movie yeah, he didn't he make a peep. Except for cheering at the metal yes. fuck ending. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. But that was just horrifying. And then, you know, you think that's going to be it. And then there's this other montage that's incredibly artistic and also gruesome and horrifying where he brings this kid like wrapped in a blanket back to the motel room. And there's blood, but they don't really show anything except for... Again, it's kind of slow motion where you hear this kid screaming. Like, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It's terrifying. Yeah. And he has put on this, like, trash bag, and he has a saw. And he, like, walks into the bathroom where this kid is, and you just see a suitcase and a mop. And, and it's then, like, holy oh my God. fuck. And then there's this montage where this is where Jesse is painting the butterfly slash dead children painting. That's when he first starts painting the dead kid. Yeah, and there's, like, this back and forth, almost side-to-side images of just blood in the bathtub and the sounds of the saw and the bloody mop and then like red and black paint like a close-up on the canvas and splashing paint and like it's beautifully done but it's absolutely terrifying absolutely and then the last image is the image of that child on the canvas who's just been killed it's terrifying absolutely and then i think one of the so this was the same kid that he got from the park so initially you think that he killed the kid it, like, yeah. it looks like a hard enough blow to kill him. And then him. they take it further. And then he takes him home, and as he's coming through the door to his motel, he's got him, like, wrapped up in a blanket, and the kid starts, like, squirming as he's, like, walking in the door, and he's, Oof. like, trying to juggle the squirming kid as he gets in, and he's like, all right, settle down now. Yeah, and then he puts the kid, or what's left of him, in a suitcase and buries it outside of jesse's property and you see him take to make room for this new suitcase there's like five or six other suitcases buried in that same spot right and then you like oh my god you like don't know how many are there because it was just one spot and he starts digging another one to yeah and you can tell the other thing is not only is he like has he done this so many times but there's also the fact that he is using like the first in first out system because it's going to be a more ripe and decaying corpse yeah so he makes sure that the freshest bodies are on the bottom i noticed that too yeah so he actually like digs them up puts the newest one on the bottom and then places the other ones on top and then go digs a a new hole for the older bodies yes and then the second horrifying scene i have it's pretty much all terrifying from here to the end and just really intense like they really ramp it up but he's on you know jesse's property so immediately after burying this kid he's covered in dirt jesse's out in the studio painting so he was in a trance and he left the door unlocked and then ray goes upstairs and climbs into bed with zoe oh my god oh my god and then she wakes up starts screaming bloody murder the mom comes in she's screaming for her dad and then you know ray gets away and they go to the police immediately and I just, I made a quick note on how amazing the cops were in this movie. Like, this police officer they talked to is just immediately reassuring them. Like, she's trying to figure out what happened. She's asking, like, was the door locked? Uh, did you guys change your locks when you moved in? And then Jesse is like, this is all my fault. I went out to the studio. And the cop is just like, this is not your fault. This is his fault. He did this. He chose to do this. And, you know, she says she's going to be stationed outside their house all night. And then Jesse stays up the entire night, like watching out the window with the baseball bat. And that's where he sees like this wicked looking black goat, too, yeah. which was really cool. Mm-hmm. And then he loses time again. And it's morning. I feel like I'm talking through the whole plot of this movie, but I feel like it's all so 
intentional and so important. Everything like, is incredibly artfully done. Yeah, not a moment is wasted. Not at all. And that's what I love about this is that it's a short movie, but it doesn't waste any time. It doesn't, you know, like you said, there's a lot going on, but it makes everything work. It like does, Every yeah. scene is important. After the whole incident with Ray climbing into bed with Zoe happens, I feel like this is where Satan ups his game. Because this uh, this art gallery shows up, and it's called Belial. And I tried to do some research on that, and it was surprisingly hard to find one specific answer of who or what Belial is. I can imagine. Yeah. But there, you know, it, basically this idea, entity, whatever you want to call it, spans across a lot of different faiths. And in the Old Testament, it's referenced, like, it says 26 times, and it doesn't refer to a specific person or being. It's more of an idea or a character trait akin to wickedness, lawlessness, and rebelliousness. Uh, there are other religious texts, like some Jewish writings, that list him as an angel who followed Satan or as a demon. And then he's referenced once in the New Testament as Satan himself. Yeah, and I also, um, I, a, a lot of the work that is done in movies and things like that yeah. uh, lies heavily on the literature that was written. So obviously yeah. Dante Inferno has been immensely influential when it yeah, comes to portraying sure. things. But so has um, Paradise Lost. Oh, and yeah. Paradise Lost is, I think, where they probably took some of their uh, motifs because I know that Belial was a pretty... A prominent character in that book. It's been a long time since I've read that, but yeah, he's kind of he's kind of portrayed as a uh, either a follower, a right hand man of uh, Satan, and um, a general in the army, if you will. Yeah. So this uh, this art gallery kind of pops up, and you know, one of the other things I really like about this movie is they don't waste a lot of time explaining backstories and a lot of exposition. There's just a lot of symbolism that you can basically decide like how much you want to dive into it. But even if you're just watching it on a surface level for the first time, I feel like it gives you enough to kind of grasp what's going on. Mm -hmm, for sure. But he, you know, he takes his uh, his work to this art gallery and this woman there who, um, again, she's got like red and black, black eyes, really badass looking, mm -hmm. <laughs> looks at his work and she's like, okay, I'm going to pass this on to the boss. And she calls him later and says, you know, the boss has a an opening this afternoon at three o'clock. Can you meet with him? And he's like, oh my God, I can't. Like, I have to pick up my daughter. And this is after the incident where Ray has crawled into bed with her and she's traumatized. Right. So she was like, I can push it to two. That's the best I can do. And he was like, shit, okay. And at this point, from now until the end of the movie, I noticed that Jesse is wearing white. Mm -hmm. And he's wearing a shirt that says, find what you we love, love and let it kill yeah. you. Isn't that a Bukowski quote? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, so he's wearing that shirt for the rest of the movie. He's very ethereal looking, very Christ-like, if you will. <laughs> but Can um, I just touch on one, a, yeah. a little thing real there? So you were saying about that uh, art studio. So I, I just have to mention, um, again, they do a lot in a very small amount of time. And it's kind of a small detail, but I think it's important. Yeah. So when he goes to that studio, you can tell that he had been there before. Because the woman that he talks to says, whoever the um, art critic is or the buyer oh, yeah. or whatever it is, she's like, he doesn't look at people's art twice. You know, you get one shot with this dude. Oh, his name's Leonard. I just, Leonard. I realized I wrote it down. Okay. Yeah. And um, you can also tell that it's like a very powerful studio and there's a lot of money involved for this type of thing. So it's like, you can tell he went there because he kind of probably liked the vibe of the place because it's dark and metal. Yeah. Um, but also because it looks like a pretty damn good studio where you're going to make money. So when, and then he's like, this is different. Something came over me. Like you just have to look at it. And that's when she looks at it and she's like, okay, I'll pass it through. 
but it's this idea that like he has tried this before and the work that he was passing through wasn't up to the standards of Belial. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up. Yeah, he even says, like, I've never had a muse before. I don't remember painting this. Yeah. And she was like, ooh. <laughs> so she sends uh, Leonard to his house, and, you know, Jesse's on edge because he knows he has to pick up his daughter, and he cannot let her down again. And he's also terrified for her life. Like, I just have to go on another small tangent real quick, but just one moment of acting that was one of my favorite moments in the movie is just his helplessness for his daughter was so heart-wrenching when he dropped her off at school that day and then just starts like crying and pounding the steering wheel because he feels so I imagine violated by what happened completely like on her behalf and as a father and as a husband and like that moment was just heart-wrenching for me and so well done and like no words were said he's just crying and pounding the steering wheel and just feels completely helpless yeah there's so much that's conveyed just in the body language and what happens in a very few amount of scenes yeah so I just had to well mention done. that because it was so well done. But, um, you know, Leonard comes to his house and he offers him what he calls Le Sang de la Terre, the blood of the earth, which is the world's oldest unblended cognac. cognac. And it oh. looks so delicious. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I want that. But uh, Leonard starts going to this whole montage about sacrifice and how, you know, you, you must sacrifice to get what you want. You know, he's talking about uh, Jesse's career and you get the impression he's basically telling him because jesse keeps saying i have to pick up my daughter i made a promise and he was like cheers to sacrifice and he's trying to make jesse late to pick up his daughter not only that but he's also it seems like he's trying to tempt him to choose his work over his family but that is ultimately not the sacrifice that jesse chooses to make he chooses his family and that brought me back to the sermon that ray was watching on tv and i i think we both wrote down the quote that the reverence said but he basically says even the tiniest bit of greed in your heart will let him in and by him i mean satan yeah and jesse just doesn't have that like he loves his daughter and well i i, I want to touch on that, that is yeah. what i was talking about and there's a few things i want to few scenes i want to emphasize through that lens but go ahead okay so we'll come back to that um but yeah jesse you know rushes out of the house to go pick up his daughter and then his tire blows out in his car and he's trying to call for help and he hears like that demonic voice over the phone and then he's like shit so he runs all the way to her school and he gets there and it's empty and she's gone and then we get the image of zoe waking up in ray's motel room on the bathroom floor covered wrapped in duct tape and then all she can see is the suitcase and the bloody mop right and then ray putting on his trash bag suit and well he hasn't put it on yet but he's in the yeah. other room and he, she is trapped in this room with him. He's kidnapped her. Oh and God. you know what he does. And he comes into the room and starts pleading with her and himself, saying, like, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to you know, do this to you, but he wanted you. And then she's, like, crying. And she's got the duct tape. And it's, like, one of the creepiest things. Because as she's crying, he goes down and he, like, uses his fingertip to wipe up some of her tears and then licks his finger Ugh. and he goes he's right you really are the sweetest candy oh god it's so terrifying and then you know that's when he leaves the room and he has the sermon playing and he puts on his trash bag suit with the saw and then you know the first time i'm watching this i'm just we already saw him brutally murder a kid in my mind nobody is safe and she could totally die at Absolutely. this moment i didn't know what was going to happen and this badass little girl ends up using her fingernail to 
unpeel some of the duct tape around her leg and then she rolls over and like sticks it on the ground and as he's trying to come into the bathroom she's able to roll over enough times to get out of the duct tape and get out the bathroom window and then he comes in and sees her getting out the bathroom yeah, window like... grabs her foot and then he like pulls off her shoe and she gets away and it's just like i hold it my is breath still, no matter how many times i see this oh it God. is such a well done scene it is an on the edge of your seat anxiety thrilling oh like God. It is very well done. It yeah. just gets you going. I remember, again, not to pick on Tom, uh, <laughs> but I remember. Man, he Sorry, was, Dad. Yeah, <laughs> Throwing him under you. the bus. Yeah. But he was on the edge of his seat, oh like literally God. watching this thing. Like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> yeah, the room was like, you could hear a pin drop in there when that was happening. <laughs> um, so before we get to, because it escalates to the ending pretty quickly, um, you had some theories like do you want to get into that now or after we talk well, about what, let's ending? get through the whole thing and okay then, yeah so now we're coming to this balls to the wall ending which is the most metal thing i've ever seen in my life where uh you know ray has tried to kill zoe he's on the loose and the cops are they're wanting to put jesse and his family into witness protection and they basically don't even want them to spend the night in their house they send them home to gather their things and they're stationed outside and while they're packing up their things, we see Ray at the gas station, and he's just buying a can of gasoline and a lighter. Right. And that's it. Creepy as hell. Yeah. And then Jesse is out in the, the studio again, like, staring at his painting and hearing this voice. And, you know, the first time I watched this, the ending was seriously almost too intense for me to handle. It was almost unbearable. Yeah. Because, like I said, you know, it's such a short amount of time, like, really just an hour they make you feel so much empathy for this family and you don't want anything to happen to them. And you feel so terrible for Zoe, who is, you know, she's going to be traumatized the rest of her life. All of them. Like you were so attached yeah. to everybody. And it's, again, you're, you're really just following these three people in their lives. And in that short amount of time, you have grown to love them yeah. and love their relationship with each other and love them as individuals. And you already know what this girl's going through. You know what the family's going through because of it. You know how helpless they feel. And at this moment, like, you think that there's going to be some kind of reprieve because there's, like, there's two cops stationed out there. Yeah. Everything's, you know, they're they're working on trying to get them out of there. And all of a sudden, Ray comes barreling through and rearing. The two cops are standing in between their patrol cars talking to each other. So it's, like, bumper to trunk. Yeah. And they're standing in between, like, maybe a three-feet distance. And they're right in front of the front door, you know, just kind of sitting there bullshit and shooting the shit. He comes barreling through and rear-ends the car oh. and basically squishes them to death. God. And you see almost everything. Like, you don't see the initial crash. You just see Zoe with her mom, and then you hear the crash and the female cop just screaming. And then Zoe immediately goes into shutdown mode and covers her ears and starts sobbing. And she's like, no, no, no. And like, you just feel so bad for her. And then you see the cop, the woman pinned in between the cars, the guy crawling away. And then Ray just like bludgeons them both with the rock, picks up the cop's gun and walks up to the front door, which it turns out he still has a key for. Right. Did you want to take it from there? Sure. And then again, so Jesse's in the studio because he's been battling with basically just trying these paintings and trying to figure out like what the fuck this is kind of been an internal battle with him and as this happens Ray walks in and he starts coming after the mother and daughter and the mom tells Zoe to run out the back door they both start running and Jesse comes barreling through because he hears the commotion he hears the cops screaming he sees Ray 
and as he's like running, he goes and he like tries to hides with the bat. Yeah, yeah. try heads with the bat. Tries to get him. Ray just like fucking plows him down because he's a big ass dude. And then as yo, I'm sorry. No, I'm getting a little mixed up. Yeah, no. He heard all the screaming. Jesse runs back inside somehow. Yeah. Right? Or was he already in there? Yeah, he came back inside. It looks like he came in another way from yeah, the studio. Yeah, he must have come in like from the back or something yeah. like and that. And at this point, Ray is still outside of yes. the front door. Yeah, and now, there's like now that now red cross. Yeah, that's and... what I'm remembering. Okay. Yeah. So again, the daughter and the mother run out. In the back, Jesse's waiting beside the door, like, crouched down, trying to, like, hide with the bat and is planning on, you know, hitting him when he comes in. And Ray starts walking in and walking towards the bat. And as soon as Jesse takes a swing at him, basically Ray is able to shoot him. And he just goes down. That and gave I think, me a heart attack. Does he shoot him twice? He shot him once. So um, he's actually trying to run to get to his wife and daughter, I think. Because at this point, he told them to run, and they went into a closet. And he's running for them. And then Ray shoots him in the like in the shoulder, like the back of the shoulder. And he goes down, and he's out. We don't know if he's dead. We don't know. But he's, like, not happened. moving. He's not moving, yeah. And then uh, the women are in the closet. And we don't see exactly what happens. But he opens the door, and you just hear them screaming. And then you hear a single shot. And then he's dragging Zoe out of the closet. Right. So, you know, and he shot up. the mom, too. Mm -hmm. And then he's, like, I think he goes to, like, shut the door or something like that. Like, he walks past the father. He basically drags Zoe past what you now think is her dead dad. Because you would think that if he just heard that shot and Zoe screaming, there would be some kind of, even just a feeble attempt of trying to get up. And Jesse's out. So, as far as you know, Jesse's dead. And maybe the mom, because you just heard a gunshot and the mom's not there. Ugh. He, like, drags Zoe past her now, like, dead dad, and she's just, like, screaming for her dad. Yeah, she's screaming, help. daddy. Daddy, help me. And then he goes, and I think, oh, he goes to pick up the gas can. And then he starts walking back, and as he's walking back, that's when the mom comes through. And he, she obviously has been shot, and she's, you know, obviously in severe pain, and she's, like, just screaming for her daughter just let her daughter go and he goes and puts the gun to her head and, and pulls the trigger and thankfully at this point he's out of ammunition and so he just kicks past her and starts lighting the staircase on fire as he walks up to the room where the whole movie started in the first place and then he goes into the room douses the whole room around the bed lights it on fire and it's just him and Zoe on this bed, and Frey starts saying, like, can you see him? He's here. The first time I watched this, this whole scene was seriously unbearable. I couldn't stand it. I thought Jesse was dead. I thought they were all going to die. I thought it was going to be... Because you know how much I love bleak horror movies? And I was like, this is too much, and I'm not okay with this. Like, you cannot hurt these sweet people. But something wonderful happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Astrid and Jesse are miraculously alive, and Astrid is shaking him awake like Jesse... He's got her. You have to wake up. And then he opens his eyes and he's like, where is she? And so he drags his wife outside and you can see the bedroom window and you can just see fire. And you start to hear like a little bit of guitar music playing, like a little bit of metal starting up. And, you know, Jesse had repeatedly had this vision throughout the movie of his daughter screaming in the middle of fire. So that's what he painted. And, you know, he gets a ladder out of the shed and climbs up to the window breaks the window and jumps in and at this point you know ray is holding zoe on the bed just waiting for the fire to close in and jesse at this point tackles him to the ground they're fighting and you're like oh shit he's gonna do it and zoe is just screaming for her life and screaming for her dad 
and Jesse gets overpowered again by Ray sticking his finger into the bullet wound, and then Jesse goes down again, and you think he's down for the count. And then there's this amazing and haunting shot where you hear like that guitar note again that mm-hmm. Ray always plays, and he's just slowly walking through the fire towards Zoe, and he almost looks demonic, like his form changes, he looks like a demon, and Zoe like stops screaming and just looks horrified, like she finally sees Satan. And you think, this is it. And then the guitar music starts up again, and Jesse fucking rises up through the <laughs> hellfire with the flying V guitar and beats Ray to death with it. Oh my god, it's such it's like, a great Oh scene. my god, it's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Not only does he <laughs> beat him to death with the guitar, but then the guitar breaks, and it's just the neck... And so then he takes the neck and stabs him oh my God. repeatedly to death with the neck of the guitar. It is without it's a doubt. It's one of the most metal fucking scenes ever. <laughs> and it's all in slow motion with like, you know, this metal music playing and the hellfire. And then he just beats and stabs this guy to death with the flying V guitar. Holy it's shit. It's one of the coolest fucking scenes ever. Oh my God. And then, can we just wrap this up real yeah, quick? Yeah, yeah. So then the last thing is with Zoe still stuck in this hellfire that this closing in because she's been stuck on the bed and the dad is yelling at her to jump and he basically, I think it's important just to say because he's saying, trust me, yeah, you know, and at this point her trust has been betrayed. First when he left her at the school the first time, then he left her at the school the second time, that the guy got into their house the first time and now he got kidnapped her, he got in and has penetrated the police like over and over and over again you get that sense of what they showed is that this father was helpless and in his eyes he was a failure and you can only imagine what was going on in her eyes that he did fail her she could not trust him and this is that moment where he's like you have to trust me and she does and she jumps and you know they get out of the house and that's basically where the movie ends like you don't get like a big old recovery ending or anything like that but as far as you know, the family survives. They survive, and the last moment of the movie is him finding the suitcases. Oh, right. With yeah, the I forgot children. about that. I'm sorry. That's super important. Yeah. And at this point, like they, um, Astrid had already called the police when Ray showed up. That was some of my anxiety the first time I watched it, and then this time I was like, oh yeah, they're already on their way. Because I'm like, you guys need medical attention. You're gonna die. But yeah. The cops are on their way, and then he was like wait a minute and then he goes over and digs up the suitcases and then the last shot is him just like looking up at the sky right and then it blacks out and then you get for whom the bell tolls by metallica so cool oh man such a great fucking scene and way to end it and so can i now can we kind of divulge into what the fuck was going on yes please the whole time so i picked up a few extra things on this because i was watching it so a couple quick caveats or things that you may not have noticed when you watch this First, second, maybe even the third time. Ray's bedding in the beginning of the movie, before he kills his mother and he wakes up, is actually covered in butterflies. Oh, shit. And it is the butterflies that Jesse begins to paint as for the commission. Nice. So he wasn't just fired by just the shit that you initially see him being entranced on. There's that subliminal aspect that he was commissioned or was inspired by these butterflies that you see. Oh, man. So that was one thing. Uh, there's also another scene where, and it's it hit me every single time I saw it the last few times we've seen it, and it wasn't until this time that I actually kind of figured out what the shape was, but there's a point when they're moving into the place, 
and there's like this cute little montage of the quick action of them like getting everything organized and moving everything and dancing mm-hmm. and having a good time but one of the last things they do is they hang up this picture of the three of them that's like this really joyful shot and it's uh zoe hanging on to her dad kind of around his waist and she's like at an angle and everyone kind of like lean back like it's a kind of an action shot jesse's in the middle Aster is on the side and she's got her like leg kicked out and her arm kicked out and if you look at it the shape that it actually makes is um, a letter that you probably don't know the name of but you've probably seen before and it's a combination of an a and an e Huh. I was wondering what... The, I kept seeing that shape and I didn't know what it was. That's what I think is going on here. So okay. if you look at this, this is just like a... It's not like a super deep thing, but it was interesting. And I really... I would be hard-pressed to say this was incidental. Like, there's very purposeful actions into the pose of that shot and other aspects of the movie that you see. So, yeah, the A is the Jesse and Zoe because she's, like, got her arms around his waist and so she's forming one leg and the, the cross member. And then the E is uh, Jesse and the mom. And the mom's, like, making the legs of the E. And that letter is uh, actually referred to in Old English. It's used in a lot of different cultures and different uh, languages. But in Old English, the name of that letter is Ash, which I thought was pretty interesting considering the fact that their whole house and their whole life got caught on fire. And the whole movie is really about, like, it starts up in flames and the, the credits and everything, and it ends in flames, and it's all about, like, this idea of ash and fire and flame. So I thought it was just kind of a, an interesting thing to note. But what I really want to dive into is that if you look at this movie through that lens of that ounce of greed in your heart, you know that Jesse is struggling with making ends meet. You also get the impression that he isn't contributing financially to the family nearly as much as he would like to. That it's mainly resting on Astrid's shoulders. And so he's feeling that sting, even though he is an artist and he's kind of been trying to freelance and, you know, live his most genuine life that he can. That is getting to him. And the fact that you know that he has presented his art to this company before. So the moment that he approaches them again and is willing to sacrifice just that little bit of time, even though it was just a little bit, it was that aspect that even the tiniest amount of greed. So he knows that he's going to disappoint his daughter. He knows that he can't make it. His best option is just to be a little bit late. But still basically betraying his daughter's trust the day after all this shit happened with uh, Ray. And so the moment that that happens... And that cost him immensely. It cost him immensely. You also get that with Zoe. So I think that happened with her as well. And it was, I think it cost her immensely. And it's the fact that she manipulated her father into letting her keep that flying V and that Marshall and, you know, making him feel so fucking guilty about this. I think that was just an ounce of greed in her heart that led Jesse to feel as compelled to do what he had to do as he did. So I think that was a really big part of it. And the fact that those are really the two scenes that cost them. So what does the ash symbol or ash letter mean or what is it i was trying to look into that more and it really it's just a sound like i thought there would be more into like what the meaning behind it was because i've seen it i always see it kind of in occult like places yeah but it's not really an occult thing okay it really just means it's a a sound and it's supposed to be like ah is what the sound it is like a short a sound yeah like a short a because you see it multiple times it's in the photo and then the 
when he sees the black goat outside, he like closes up on its horns and he sees that shape again. Yeah. And then the image of Ray walking up to the front door through the stained glass red cross, it's the exact same shape. What I was picking up on it was that the name of the letter is Ash. Okay. And ashes usually signifies or is symbolic of destruction. That's so interesting. I really like that take on it. I have a different experience with this movie every time I watch it. And again, I'm so impressed by it because this movie is an hour and 15 minutes long. I've seen it so many times. And every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. And I love it even more. Like, I adore this movie. If one last thing with the Greer thing I forgot. is the very oh, yeah. the, the very initial thing that happens. And that is when both... Astrid and Jesse have that ounce of greed, even though it was mainly Jesse. I made a note in here that this movie was a message to poor folk that you'll never be able to fight afford your dream house. <laughs> so don't buy that don't murder buy house. Don't buy that murder house. Uh, <laughs> because that was one of the, that's what initially got this ball rolling is the fact that they could afford this place and they knew that there was something up with it. This weird Texan dude basically pressures them into buying this on the spot. And he, you know, he tells them about this family dying here tries to sell it off as though it was just an accident and a suicide. Even though you can tell Astrid is a little bit weirded out by this. Mm-hmm. And she is also afraid about the financial aspect, obviously. And Jesse kind of pressures her. is like, dude, we need to, we have to take this. And the realtor basically is like, I, I got people lined up all day. You guys want this thing or not? And I think that was that moment where they decided to do something that was maybe a little bit outside of their core values. Accept yeah. this on a whim and accept it without thinking about it and to take that deal because it was at a greed. And even, yeah. even the, the wording that that guy uses is people love a bargain. Yeah. Oh, man. So I think that's what this whole movie comes down to is this idea of greed and forces both good and evil, are only really a manifestation of ourselves. Which is exactly what the reverend says on TV. Right. I also wanted to touch base, even though I know we don't have a lot of time, but we touched it on the beginning of this episode, talking about Mary Benson and that piece of shit that did that to her. Yeah. And we had kind of talked about it with this dude. And oh, that's right. He's done this before. He's done this before. And I just want to say, I'm not. we don't have time to get into it, because we've already been talking about this for a while because of how much we love it. But I just got to throw it in real quick, just that you can talk about it with your friends if you want to. This touches upon the idea of capital punishment and whether or not it's justified. Interesting. Just going to throw that out there. We'll leave that for another day. All right. But this touches on whether or not, in an extreme case, at least, and that's why you should always talk about things. So, uh, I don't know about you, but this is a 12 out of 2 beers for me. I fucking love this movie. Yeah, I actually, uh, before the movie even started, I had my rating, and, you know, I was open to have it change. But to quote what you said in our first episode, I just wrote a note that said, no beating around the satanic bush. This movie is a 12 out of 12. <laughs> <laughs> There's no ifs, ands, or buts Now, I was it. trying to argue with myself. I was like, fuck that. I fucking love it's this movie. Perfect. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's got every element that I want in here. It's got, it's intense. It's evil. It's good. It's got metal. It's it got portrays, heart. It's got heart. It's got soul. I love this movie. You know, just to go one further, like I mentioned in our first episode, what you referred to as my fire triangle of horror, which is witches, cults, and Satan. (laughs) This one has Satan, and it is probably one of the best satanic horror movies out there. It's amazing. Absolutely. So we were pretty much in agreement on this right away without even realizing it before we watched the movie, but what beer would you pair the devil's candy with? 
no beating around the satanic bush, straightforward. <laughs> I'm going with the Stone Chipotle Smoked Porter. Yep, same here. We both thought of this beer for this movie. and This is no joke. She was sitting there on the couch and she's like, you know, I was thinking about this beer and I'm not sure if it's the right one. And she just said that. I was like, dude, I had that in my fucking mind the whole time. <laughs> it's perfect. This movie is really just a decadent treat. And it's fiery. It's fiery and it's indulgent and it's delicious. And this beer, it's one of the most unique tasting beers I've ever had. Like, I love a good porter. I love a fancy, rich, dark beer. But this one... I've never tasted anything like it, and you really get that Chipotle at the end. So normally we would suggest like a certain kind of beer, like a stout, a lager, a porter, but I feel like this specific beer from this specific brewery is the only Absolutely. option for this movie. That's the beer. Well, now that we've wrapped up that beautiful movie, what are we watching this week? The last several times I chose a movie, I had a really hard time choosing, but for this one, it came to me right away. Especially after watching The Devil's Candy, because like I said, it's one of my points in the Fire Triangle 4. So we have Witches, Cults, and Satan. So the next movie we're doing touches on one of my other favorite things, which is Cults. And also to build off of that, the weather is getting warmer, spring is in the air, flowers are blooming, and if we were not in quarantine, <laughs> you know, cultures all around the world would be dancing around a maypole right now. <laughs> So <laughs> next week, we are covering the literal cult classic from 1973, The Wicker Man. Nice. That's going to be fun. I love the shit out of this movie. If you have not seen it, please do yourself a favor and go watch it. It's streaming on Netflix right now. And if you enjoy movies about cults and just religious horror in general, this is a must watch. It's, I've only, gotta see I it. think I've only seen it the one time, which was not that long ago, and yeah. it was a hoot. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to do The Wicker Man nice. on our next episode. All right, I'm looking forward to that. Good Me pick. too. Thank you. So as always, you can follow us on Instagram at Blood, Fear, and Beer Podcast. And if you have movie or beer suggestions for us, or if you want to tell us about the most metal thing you've ever seen, you can email us at bloodfearandbeer at gmail.com. And we are also now available on Apple Podcasts, finally. So if you're accessing our podcast from there, please rate, review, and subscribe if you can. It really helps us out, and it helps other horror fans find us faster. Big time. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. This has been an absolute blast. Absolutely. And until next time, keep it spooky. Keep it spooky. Keep it spooky.